Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Aaron Vistani. Tonight we'll be asking whether a hugely controversial piece of legislation is primarily about theatre rather than addressing the situation, more appalling news about Britain's police forces, smartphones and our mental health, and a multi-billion dollar announcement that felt like a scene from Top Gun. To discuss all of that, I'm joined by Navarra Media's very own Maverick, or is he Iceman, Michael Walker? Michael, is my hosting taking your breath away? Nothing you do fails to take my breath away, Aaron. I am always surprised in the in the in the, in the best sense. In the best sense, I have to say we were discussing this before. I haven't seen Top Gun, but I do love that song. Um, so that's my only way into that particular pop culture reference. That's good. I, I would have been very surprised, Michael, if you weren't a, a Top Gun devotee. I like to think of myself as Goose. Uh, a question for you guys watching at home is spending billions of pounds on submarines for the other side of the world a smart use of taxpayers' money? I'm pretty sure I know what the response to that will be. Let us know what you think on Twitter by commenting on the hashtag, hashtag Live, and of course, in the YouTube comments. First story. Suella Braverman's illegal migration bill has passed its second reading in the House of Commons. Normally, after a bill has been presented to Parliament, MPs are given at least two weeks to read it and prepare for the debate. Often, it's much longer. But in a sign that the government wanted to push the law through as quickly as possible, that prep time was cut in half. Here's how Braverman opened the debate. The vast majority of arrivals, 74% in 2021, were adult males under the age of 40. The vast majority were not pregnant women. The vast majority were not young children. All travelled through safe countries like France, in which they could and should have first claimed asylum. Many, many came directly from safe countries like Albania. And, that, and when we try to remove them, they turn our generous asylum laws against us to thwart removal. The reality is, Mr Deputy Speaker, is that this system is simply unfair. It's unfair on the most vulnerable. It's unfair on those who play by the rules. It's unfair on the British people. So we must change the law and we must stop the boats. Now, Mr Speaker, for too long, those of us voicing concerns about the effects of uncontrolled, unprecedented and illegal migration have been accused of inflammatory rhetoric. But nothing, nothing is more likely to inflame tensions than ignoring the public's reasonable concerns about the current situation. The public are neither stupid nor bigoted. They can see firsthand the impact on their communities, and it's irresponsible to suggest otherwise. What's irresponsible is moving asylum seekers to hotels in small and deprived towns and using them as bait for the far right. Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper summed up some of the grossest aspects of the bill. We need urgent action to stop the dangerous boat crossings that are putting lives at risk and undermining our border security. But this bill is a con 
that makes the chaos worse. It won't do the things the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary have promised. It won't stop the criminal gangs or dangerous crossings. And in fact, it makes it easier for those gangs as well. It won't return everyone. In fact, it makes it harder to get return agreements. It won't clear the asylum backlog. In fact, it will mean tens of thousands more people in asylum accommodation and hotels. It won't deliver controlled and managed safe alternatives. Instead, it will cut them back. And it will rip up our long-standing commitment to international law. And it will lock up children. It will lock up children, remove support and safe refuges from women who have been trafficked. And it will deny citizenship for people like Mo Farah. Ahead of the debate, there were signs that some Tories were troubled by aspects of the proposed law, particularly when it comes to children. Under the coalition government, the Home Office was prevented from holding unaccompanied children, families with children and pregnant women in detention centres. Nick Clegg won that ban after it emerged that between 2005 and 2009, the new Labour government had locked up around 2,000 migrant children a year. But according to a report by the House of Commons Library, Braverman's bill would make children fair game once more. Claims this. Clause 11 of the illegal migration bill would provide new powers to detain people who are covered or potentially covered by the arrangements for removal duty in clause 2, e.g. people arriving in small boats and their relevant family members. Existing statutory limitations on the detention of families with children, pregnant women and unaccompanied children would not apply to the exercise of these new powers. That all sounds pretty clear. The statutory limitations won't apply to children coming here on small boats. Here's Braverman again. Given the mischaracterisation of the bill from members opposite, I'd like to make a few things clear. The Home Secretary's duty to remove will not be applied to detain and remove unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Consistent with current policy, only in limited circumstances, such as for the purposes of family reunion, we will remove unaccompanied asylum-seeking children from the UK. Otherwise, they will be provided with the necessary support in the UK until they reach 18. With respect to the removal of families and pregnant women, it bears repeating that the overwhelming majority of illegal arrivals are adult men under the age of 40. Removing them will be our primary focus. But we must not create incentives for the smugglers to focus on with to focus on people with particular characteristics by signposting exemptions for removal. It is right that we retain powers to adapt our policy so that we can respond to any change in tactics by the smuggling gangs. That's a pretty straightforward confirmation that the Home Office will have the power to detain families with children as well as pregnant women. Tory MP Robert Buckland raised his concerns over this aspect of the bill. Just to, uh, in perhaps not second reading tradition, but deal with a particular clause of the bill, clause three, about the detention of children, which I have great concern about. I know it's a, it's a power, Mr Deputy Speaker, it's not a, a duty. Uh, when powers are put into bills, it's usually because the policymakers haven't actually decided what to do and whether to use them. And it's a, it's a holding mechanism in order for the government to make a decision. Well, my strong suggestion to them when we come to amendment is to, is to ditch that clause and to look very carefully 
at the way in which we deal with unaccompanied children, families and women. Because there's nothing worse, Would Mr Deputy Speaker, than ineffective authoritarianism. Right, friend, and that right. is the danger of provisions like that. Kamina Dawling is chair of the Refugee and Migrant Children's Consortium. She told The Guardian what the impact of the bill would be, saying this. In 2010, the government committed to ending the state-sponsored cruelty of locking children and families up for immigration purposes. In light of clear evidence showing the long-lasting psychological and physical damage it causes them, if this draconian legislation passes, thousands of children could be held in mass detention centres for months on end, causing unimaginable trauma and harm. Braveman's bill also tears up Britain's modern slavery legislation, preventing people who arrive by small boats from claiming protection if they are also the victims of people trafficking. Former Prime Minister Theresa May made this intervention in the debate. Having been Home Secretary for six years, I understand the pressures to deal with illegal migration. In my day, people were getting into the backs of lorries and the backs of cars of British tourists returning across the border at Calais. I did a deal with the French, the numbers went down. I have to say I suspect it is partly because of the success of that policy uh, that uh, we now see people coming in small boats. I welcome the new deal which has been done with France because it will have an impact. But what should be clear from this is that whenever you close a route for migrants, whenever you close a route, the migrants and the people smugglers find another way. And anybody who thinks that this bill will deal with the issue of illegal migration once and for all is wrong. Yeah. Not least because a significant number, if not the majority of people who are here illegally don't come on small boats. They come legally and overstay their visas. As well as working to reduce uh, illegal migration, I, as has been mentioned, introduced the Modern Slavery Act. That was world-leading legislation. It dealt with traffickers and people who were being enslaved here in the United Kingdom, British citizens. But it was never just a bill about slavery in the UK. It, as we saw with the prosecution of a British woman under that act for trafficking women from Nigeria to Germany. And I must say there has been some loose talk about people smuggling and human trafficking and losing the two terms in the same breath as if they're the same. They're not, they're two separate crimes. Someone paying their own money to be smuggled across the border is not a victim of human trafficking, which includes coercion, exploitation. Nobody wants to see our world leading legislation being abused, but the government has to set out the clear evidence if they are saying there is a link between that and the small boats. And so far, I have not seen that evidence. And remember, nearly 90% of modern slavery claims are found to be valid. Now, that doesn't include recent applications, but I think that figure should give cause for concern. Despite those concerns about children and modern slavery raised by Tory MPs, the bill passed with a majority of 63. It now moves forward to committee scrutiny. But given that the Home Office itself judged that there's more than a 50% chance the bill will break current law, it's likely to come back with significant changes. So what was the point of putting it to Parliament in its current form at all? That's a question Channel 4's Gary Gibbon puts Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Some people, as you well know, think, actually, you're, you're quite enjoying all the noise around this. You'll enjoy the noise and you'll look in shocked horror when the, the courts say you can't have... Uh, this law because it's slightly performative. It's about making a connection with the uh, British 
voters. It's it's a it's out of the it's out of the Boris Johnson. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't disagree with you more. I, there's there's nothing I enjoy about people needlessly dying because they're being exploited by criminal gangs trying to make crossings to the UK or other countries. There's no enjoyment in that. There's no enjoyment in the fact that our system is being overwhelmed by people, which means that we can't target our compassion and generosity on the people who most need our help, or the fact that we're spending five and a half million pounds a day on hotels to house illegal asylum seekers. There's no enjoyment in any of that. You know, my job is to fix that. Right? That's what I promised to do at the beginning of this year when I made five promises to the country, one of which was to stop the boats. Michael, is this policy really about theatre or, as Rishi Sunak says, fixing things? Because I think theatre seems a more plausible explanation, doesn't it? I mean, if, if this was about fixing things or compassion for people who are putting their lives at risk in the channel, I doubt we would have podiums that say stop the boats you know, it looks exactly like an election campaign. It looks exactly like get Brexit done, stop the boats on the podium, right? This is not a guy who is saying, oh, we have a technocratic issue and we have to compassionately resolve it. No, this is very clearly. And I think it's just, I don't think anyone believes Rishi Sunak when he says that this policymaking process, this campaign where stop the boats is number five on his five people's priorities or whatever, that this is anything other than an attempt to, to whip up a, a sort of moral panic that they can then go and exploit at the time of the next general election. And I mean, sadly, apparently, I mean, it is working to some degree. So polls have sort of shown um, that people now trust um, the Tories to tackle illegal immigration much more than they do the Labour Party. And before it was about neck and neck, because I suppose people weren't thinking about it that much. So illegal migration has gone up. Well, I should say, I don't want to, I don't want to use their language, sorry. Undocumented migration or what they call illegal migration has gone up in terms of what people think is an issue in this country. And people have more faith in the Tories to solve it than they do Labour. Now, lots of people are saying this could backfire because, you know, as we've, you know, as you've been talking about there, this isn't a particularly well thought through piece of legislation that is likely to stop the votes. But I mean, the next general election is going to be quite soon, right? So, so long as they can have people thinking in their heads that this is a big issue and we are the ones to be trusted on it more than the Labour Party, that's a win for them. That's exactly what's going on here. Uh, and I don't think Theresa May standing up and sort of saying that she's obviously no friend to people who are seeking sanctuary, right? She was an incredibly, I mean, vicious Home Secretary. She was the architect of, of the Windrush scandal. It was Amber Rudd um, who had to resign, but it was Theresa May who put the architecture in place. Um, so to sort of see her stand up and say, this doesn't make actually much sense, you know, from a technocratic perspective, there are, there are loads of holes here. This is obviously cobbled together. She is not on our side of politics and she recognizes that as well. So this is political theater. And I suppose what's so dangerous and damaging about that is, you know, because ideally I don't really want this piece of legislation to work, right? I, I hope that th this, this policy to try and send people off to Rwanda so that no one bothers trying to come to Britain anymore, I hope that fails, right? But the issue of them setting up this piece of um, legislation, which part of the theatre is for it to fail, by the way, then what that's going to encourage people to do is to say, well, take it into your own hands. You know, we, um, the sovereign parliament, tried to sort this out, but a foreign court have, have stood in our way. And then, you know, that that's going to, I think, plausibly lead people to say, well, let, let, let's, let's take this on ourselves. Let's go demonstrate outside hotels where asylum seekers have been dumped in our communities, right? And, and, and that's incredibly dangerous. I want to show you another clip from that debate. It's Suella Braverman again, and this time she's talking about her own status as a child of migrants. When she refers to the member for Whitham, she's referring to Priti Patel. I want to put something on the record. 
It's perfectly respectable for a child of immigrants like me to say that I'm deeply grateful to live here, to say that immigration has been overwhelmingly good for the United Kingdom, but that we've had too much of it in recent years. And to say, and to say, and to say that uncontrolled and illegal migration is simply bad. Despite our reasonable concerns that we have raised on several occasions, like my right honourable friend, the member for Whitham, before me, I am subject to the most grotesque slurs for saying such simple truths about the impact of unlimited and illegal migration. The worst among them, poisoned by the extreme ideology of identity politics, suggests that a person's skin colour should dictate their political views. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, I will not be hectored by out-of-touch lefties or anyone for that matter. I won't be patronised. I won't be patronised on what appropriate views for someone of my background can hold, and I will not back down when faced with spurious accusations of bigotry. Mr Deputy Speaker, when such smears seep into the discourse of this chamber, as they did last week, accusations that this government's policies, policies backed by the majority of the British people, are bigoted, are bigoted, are xenophobic, or are dog whistles to racists, it is irresponsible and, frankly, beneath the dignity of this place. Politicians of all stripes should know better and they should choose their words carefully. I want to refer to the beginning of that clip. She says that immigration is good, we think it's good, but now it's, it's too much, now it's bad. And I wonder when the tipping point is, when does good migration become bad migration? Is it perhaps when Suella Breverman and her family, uh, her predecessors arrive here, she gets a nice job, she's earning good money, she's a senior figure in a, in a Westminster government, and it's only then, it's only then when it's politically convenient, just because she happens to be a Conservative MP, by the way, that uh, immigration is now a problem. That was the tipping point when Suella Braverman became Home Secretary. Makes you think. Michael, now does the fact that Braverman isn't white uh, provide the Tories with more licence than what is, from a number of angles, a truly barbaric policy? 100%. 100%. I mean, I suppose what you, what you heard... From, from that speech there was sort of the elision of lots of different things. So she's saying, I, it shouldn't be, uh, people, people shouldn't say that because of my ethnic background, I should have certain politics. Absolutely right. Um, I, I think they're very hopeful, in fact, that the other side will sort of fall into this trap and start saying, well, Suella Braverman, how dare you as a person of, of an ethnic minority background be now pulling up the drawbridge, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would be a politically silly thing to do. Um, the Tories are desperate for that to happen. Um, so Suella Braverman there in, in that speech was saying, my skin colour shouldn't affect my politics. True. But calling us bigoted or saying that this is a xenophobic policy is itself incredibly irresponsible. Now, those are two completely different things. So saying that Suella Braverman's politics should be determined by her ethnic background. Yes. Wrong. Don't do it. Saying that the government policies that they are promoting are bigoted and xenophobic. There is nothing wrong with that. That's correct, right? And, and I think that elision of the two things there was incredibly sneaky and incredibly cynical. It's sneaky from a conservative home secretary. Who would have thought it? Um, uh, you look, as somebody who's mixed heritage myself, it's so ridiculous. Of course somebody with brown skin can advance a racist policy. 
Of course they can. This is 2023. People need to grow up. I know it's hard for the conservatives, but I'm, I'm hoping they'll get there eventually too. Next story. Newly released figures show that 1,539 police officers and fellow members of staff at forces in England and Wales faced allegations relating to violence against women and girls in the six months to March last year. As a result, 13 individuals were dismissed from their position. Now, these allegations fall into two categories, allegations from police officers and fellow members of staff and allegations from the public. The BBC reports this. During the six months to March 2022, members of the public made 524 complaints relating to violence against 867 officers. Of these, 290 cases have been resolved, with 9 in 10 ending in no further action. During the same period, 672 police officers and other staff were reported by colleagues. So far, 167 cases have been dealt with, and of these, 7 in 10 ended in no further action. The report said the true figures were likely to be far higher because of underreporting by police staff and inaccuracies and inconsistencies in data collection across forces. Now, this data comes from 39 of the 43 police forces in England and Wales. Police chiefs have said the other four forces were omitted because they didn't meet the standards required to be included. Now, the Times newspaper helpfully put the data from the public into a comprehensible chart. Uh, as you can see here, nearly two thirds of the complaints were made by women taking issue with the use of force. That includes, for example, the way they were handcuffed or arrested. But alarmingly, there are 37 recorded allegations of sexual assault, 31 for abuse of position for sex, sexual purpose, uh, and 24 police action following contact. Again, it's important to say this is just over a period of six months. Now, this story was incredibly hard to make sense of, for me at least, because frankly, the reporting was very ambiguous. But from what I understand, the 13 dismissals in six months for violence against girls and women was entirely as a result of the internal allegations. Meanwhile, according to the Times, quote, no officers or staff were sacked as a result of the complaints made by the public. Hundreds of allegations of illegal behavior by police officers over six months, and yet nobody was sacked. It makes you think. Now, the context for all of this is stories like what we saw with David Carrick recently. He was a police officer and serial rapist. Among his victims were two women colleagues, fellow police officers, who felt they couldn't disclose their assaults because they felt they wouldn't be believed. Police officers don't trust the police to protect them. That's how bad this is. At least when they reported these kinds of incidents over the six-month period, some people were fired. Andrea Simon, director of End Violence Against Women, welcomed what she called a benchmark for scrutiny, but said the data was just the tip of the iceberg. Michael, it's obviously good that this data is being released, but 13 people being let go for violence against girls and women as a result of internal complaints is extraordinary. We'll talk about the other stuff in a moment, but that in itself is pretty remarkable, isn't it? I mean, imagine if this was teachers. The Daily Mail and The Sun would be running a permanent campaign, and yet when it's the police, we don't hear very much. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's important to say, I suppose, because, you know, when you, when you say it, there's all of these complaints and there's only this many instances when those complaints have been upheld or when action has been taken. Now, there's two ways of interpreting that, isn't there? One of them is to say, oh, there's lots of spurious complaints. 
Um, and what's clear is that once the process goes into motion, um, it's found out that these aren't as serious as the, the, the claimant in initially thought they were. Uh, the other alternative is that there are all these complaints being made. And the reason none of them are being upheld is because the process is completely rotten. And I think there are there is enough evidence before our eyes um, to suggest it's probably the latter in this case, right? So you've got incredibly high profile um, people like Carrick, as you as you mentioned, people who, when you look at their individual case throughout the years, all of the sort of horrific abuse they have sort of partaken in, and how that should have been obvious to the police, and how there were clear failings over and over and over again. Right, you can see in these individual cases that it's much more plausible that this is that these complaints are not being dealt with properly. In the BBC um, article that I think you you quoted there as well, elsewhere in it, they sort of talked to um, someone who was a, a a partner of a police officer in an abusive relationship, in a, what she alleges was 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 an abusive relationship, and her account is that essentially the police just were not particularly interested at all. It felt like this was going nowhere, and that's because there was a culture of protecting your own. And also, I mean, if you look at these numbers, this is 0.7% of the police force in six months were subject to complaints pertaining to violence or harassment against women. 0.7, that's a lot of people. And so what that makes you think is that potentially the police haven't found this very shocking. So if there is a complaint that a, a police officer was abusive or violent towards a woman, it's, it's not like, oh my God, this is really serious. We need to do something about it. It's like, meh, that seems to happen quite a lot. You know, so, so all, 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 all the evidence to me seems to be pointing to the idea that there are a lot of complaints and they're not being dealt with properly and that's a complete scandal and that's going to be why we keep seeing so many complaints being made because if you don't deal with complaints properly, then people will keep committing the abuse over and over again. Yeah, I th there's so much to this. It was reported, like I said earlier on, in, in the BBC and in the Times. And the headline is quite scandalous, right? You know, there's people have been let go. But to me, there's two layers here, Michael. And I think you've highlighted one of them really, really well. Like you say, over six months, as a result of internal complaints, 0.7% of the police force has a problem. And we know there's gross problems with regards to underreporting, which, which basically means at least one in 100 officers is being... Um, uh, is alleged to have been involved in this kind of activity, at least one in a hundred, which is pretty extraordinary. Then you move to the other side of this, of course, which is you have all of these complaints from the public, some of which are extraordinarily serious, including things like sexual assault, and yet nobody's lost their position in six months. Now, you might think that the vast majority of those are made up, inaccurate, whatever. You, you can't seriously tell me that all of them, all of them were uh, sufficiently weak that nobody lost their job. And by the way, we shouldn't just be talking about people losing their jobs. This is criminal activity, potentially, right? We should be talking about people standing trial, facing prosecution, maybe going to prison. That's how we talk about it with normal people. But when it's with the police force, we say, oh, they, they, they should lose their job. Well, yes, they should, but also there's a further step to it as well. Michael, I suppose the counter-argument is that, look, at least this data is now being made public. You and I can talk about it. We can scrutinize it. I mean, that's a big improvement on the recent past, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, I suppose, how did, how did we get here? So, I mean, it, what it took for this data to be published and sort of people to be talking about it and then to finally be some scrutiny put on the police were two of the most horrific stories, you know, imaginable. So you had uh, someone being abducted and, and killed. That was the Sarah Everard case. And then you've got this Carrick case, which is a police officer who has been convicted of, of multiple rapes over multiple years. Right. So it, it took something so extreme for us to finally look at this. And yes, let's really hope that this scrutiny does lead to something, because my fear would be the moment this goes out of the headlines, then 
you know, all of those sort of institutional practices and institutional press pressures that meant that these were ignored for such a long period of time, you know, they are going to rise to the surface again. So unless there is constant scrutiny until this is sorted, I mean, you know, it's, it's probably never going to be completely sorted. There's always going to be issues of abuse in, in the police. I think that's sort of part of the nature of, of that profession because you give people so many so much power over over other people and that doesn't my conclusion is to say let's abolish them my conclusion is to say let's always be aware of that and have incredible scrutiny over them and that's clearly what we have failed to do over previous decades and it took two horrific horrific criminals within the police force themselves for people to finally wake up to this so well said and it's one of those stories which is only going to grow over time because they really can't seem to help themselves the police. It's just extraordinary the extent to which we hear story after story and it never seems to stop. Next story. The alliance between the US, UK and Australia is an old one. And in September 2021, it was renewed in the form of the AUKUS alliance. The main objective of AUKUS is to push back against Chinese influence in the Pacific. And core to that is the US and UK helping Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines. On Monday, Joe Biden stood alongside Rishi Sunak and Anthony Albanese as they unveiled the details of what that submarine program would look like. They released this joint statement in surroundings that resembled a scene from a Top Gun spin-off. For more than a century, our three nations have stood shoulder to shoulder to help sustain peace, stability and prosperity around the world, including in the Indo-Pacific. Some people in the Indo-Pacific might have some thoughts about that. Uh, the steps we are announcing today will help us to advance these mutually beneficial objectives in the decades ahead. So what does this look like? Well, under the three-stage plan, Australia and Britain will co-build a new submarine. This is being called the SSN AUKUS, and it's based on a modified version of a next-generation boat the UK was already designing. Then the UK and Australia plan to build at least eight of the multi-billion dollar submarines each. The first Australian boats will not enter service until the early 2040s, with the full fleet being built over the following two decades. So we're spending billions of dollars for submarines in the Pacific Ocean 40 plus years from now. Some UK defence chiefs have even signalled that Britain will be open to expanding its fleet of submarines to as many as 19 in the future. These are offensive weapons intended for the other side of the world. But it's that word prosperity from the joint statement that I want to focus on. Because of course, none of this is going to come cheap. Here's Rishi Sunak discussing a £5 billion boost to UK defence spending. Well, the government's first priority, my priority, is to keep our country safe. And today we're publishing our integrated review, which sets out our foreign policy and approach to security policy. And it's clear that the world has become more volatile, the threats to our security have increased, and that's why we're investing £5 billion more in our well-beating armed forces over the next two years and increasing our defence spending to 2.5% of GDP so we can continue to be a world leader when it comes to defence and keep our country safe. So defence spending will increase by £5 billion over the next two years. By the way, according to the IISS, Britain is already the third in the world when it comes to military spending. In 2022, we spent £45.9 billion. Pounds. Now, there's an argument that says Russia is belligerent and that Britain needs to help maintain security in Europe. 
That's why Penny Mordaunt said that defence spending was the country's top priority last month when speaking to the BBC. It's also why Ben Wallace, the Secretary of State for Defence, called for defence spending to more than double by 2030. This is from late last year. UK defence spending to double to 100 billion by 2030, says Minister. Ben Wallace says military will grow for first time since end of Cold War with armed forces budget rise. So it's a top priority and we need to counteract Russia, which is struggling, by the way, to make much progress in Ukraine these days. But park that for a moment. Here's the thing. Most of that five billion isn't going to European security or counteracting Russia. It's going to, you guessed it, funding nuclear enterprises like the AUKUS project. So the majority of that cash isn't going to fighting against Russia and Europe. It's to build offensive capabilities on the other side of the world when most of us are dead in the 2060s. Now, compare this to the government's priorities at home. A three-day strike of junior doctors is underway because they want a pay rise, which would mean they earn the same in real terms as they did in 2010. The cost of that? Around a billion pounds. In fact, we could give everyone in the public sector a pay rise in line with inflation this year, and according to the IFS, it would cost £18 billion. But apparently, that's outlandish for a government which talks about doubling defence spending, most of which, if recent announcements are anything to go by, would be spent on expensive weapons for the other side of the planet, rather than defence of the realm close to home. Michael, you can pick an argument apart. Am I being unfair? Is spending all of this money on nuclear power, submarines, smart business and in the national interest? No. <laughs> no you're, I think you're being entirely reasonable here. I mean, I think, I think you know, the, the Russia argument is interesting. I think you know, there are many rules of thumbs to sort of decide, is this spending really for defence or is it for something else? If it's not in your continent, right, it's not defence. Britain is not going to be defended in the South China Sea. If, if we're investing in nuclear capabilities in the South China Sea, that is going to be an offensive action. Maybe you're going to be defending some business interests, right? But that's not defense. That's, that's business, right? So, so it, it's mischaracterized by the government, I think. I mean, I, I think what this all feeds into as well, because what we're always hearing is, no, we've got to increase defense spending because China is a rising power and we're all going to get um, you know, completely um, under the farm of, of China. We need to wake up. They're spending on the military. We need to spend on the military. Now, China, which you know, is a country of 1.4 Billion people, they their their military spending makes up fourteen percent of the total spending in the world. The USA, you know, a country of three hundred fifty million or whatever, their spending is thirty eight percent of the world total. Right, so you've got all these Western people. So you, you always hear these people from sort of like the pro NATO think tank saying like the West needs to wake up and start properly um, making sure that we don't get outpaced by the Chinese when it comes to military spending. We are already spending so much more. Than China, but spending, you know, the combined West spending, you know, 60% of the total military budget of the world, that's not enough. We, we need even more. We need such extreme dominance that no one would dare have any kind of independent foreign policy of their own. And, and that's essentially what this is about. It's not about us keeping up with anyone. It is the West maintaining total hegemony over the entire world, even if that risks a war with China, which isn't going to be good for anyone. Very well put. And it gets to this separate point I want to make here, which is the angle of an arms race, which we definitely can't afford. 
Here's the Financial Times reporting on precisely that issue. China on Tuesday warned that AUKUS would start an arms race and undermine the International Nuclear Weapon Non-Proliferation Treaty through the transfer of what it said was, quote, weapons-grade, highly enriched uranium to a non-nuclear weapon state. That's Australia. The three countries have gone further and further down the wrong and dangerous path for their own geopolitical self-interest, completely ignoring the concerns of the international community, China's foreign ministry spokesperson said. One senior U.S. official rejected suggestions the U.S. wanted to, quote, contain China, saying AUKUS was an effort to defend and secure the Indo-Pacific, precisely why Britain needs to do that, I don't know, particularly after, quote, provocative steps under Chinese President Xi Jinping. This is just pretty depressing, isn't it? We can't afford to educate nurses or build houses, but we can definitely afford to get in an arms race to the country of one 0.4 billion people. Michael, am I am I crazy for thinking this is crazy? I mean, look, the Australians, I only really discovered this later on today, actually, they will be spending on nuclear-powered submarines, not even nuclear submarines, right? This won't be a nuclear capability. They're going to be spending 250 billion US dollars. And, and it feels to me like basically the Australian taxpayer is going to be subsidizing shipbuilding in the US and UK, which, you know, if you're a UK or US defense contractor, fantastic. But I really struggle to see how, how you can sell this to working class Australians. Middle Australia, if such a thing exists, I'm sure it does. I mean, am, I, am I crazy for thinking this? $250 billion. It's a country of 30 million people. And then you've got here in the UK, we're told well, we can't give junior doctors one, two billion. But sure, we can, uh, we can increase defense spending by five billion over the next two years. No problem. I mean, this is so, so puzzling to me. And, and it feels like the threat of Russia, which is very real, and it's clearly destabilizing Europe. Nobody's disputing that on this show. It feels like the Tories um, are now using that issue to, to basically promote a very different, far more expensive, far more extravagant, far less popular sort of military agenda, which is spending billions to pretend we're still a superpower thousands of miles away from home. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's also worth, you know, being clear, you know, Russia isn't a threat to us, right? Russia is clearly well, it's more than a threat to Ukraine. It's invading Ukraine, right? So so there, there can be justification as sort of saying we want to show solidarity to Ukraine and send them some weapons, whatever. But that's not to defend Britain. There is no conceivable possible situation where Russia is itself a security threat to us in Britain. I think that's just, you know, it's important to remember. I know that's not what you're implying, but just sort of as a clarification. And I think this, the same is, is here, really. Now, how, how, how is it being sold to the Australian public? Now, when I'm in the hosting chair, sometimes I'm looking for sort of clips um, on, on YouTube, for sort of news stories. And it means that I often end up watching other English language um, news channels or, or videos up on, on YouTube. And if you ever click on something from Australia about China, they are literally like war is around the corner. And partly this is because of Rupert Murdoch and Sky News in Australia is very different to Sky News in, in, in the UK. It's much more like Fox News, right? And it's literally like you, you just see all the soldiers marching. You have that sort of doom-laden music in the background. And they are literally talking about the oncoming war with China. Like So so how is this being sold to the Australian people? Well, they've got a lot of warmongering media outlets who are really, really selling this sort of Chinese scare. We need to be investing shed loads of money in, in, in the military so that we can defend our island against the Chinese. Now, what are these nuclear submarines for? Yes, they're, they're not going to be equipped with, with nuclear weapons. There are concerns that um, the, the materials could 
could ultimately be sort of upgraded into nuclear weapons. I'm not sure how much of an interest Australia has in doing that, considering they have such strong alliances with nuclear powers. Um, but clearly, if the Chinese were to sort of gift this um, technology to a smaller power that they're allied with, I'm sure the West would have quite a lot to say about it. But in any case, to get back to my point, what 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 is the purpose of having these military submarines? It's so you can have submarines go further and further away from from where you are without needing to refuel. They can stay underwater for basically for as long as you can keep the, the people on there alive, right? So obviously at some point you might run out of food or whatever, but you're not going to run out of fuel. Um, if it was a diesel submarine like the French were going to sell them, then you have to resurface every now and again to refuel. You don't have to do this with this. Now, that to me, again, doesn't seem like a defensive capability because if these are going to be submarines that are in Australian waters, then it's not particularly hard for them to surface every now and again and get refueled. What having nuclear submarines is about is that you can go, you know, do you sail a submarine? I don't know. You can you drive a submarine. Whatever you do with a submarine, you can do it pretty far away. And I think the Chinese are going to have some very understandable suspicions that that submarine is going to be hang, hanging around on their coast. And the idea, I think, from the West is that well, this, this is a deterrent because it means that if they go for Taiwan, they don't know what's going to shoot out from their coasts and bomb their mainland. But it, to me, that that's just a classic sort of mutually assured destruction type argument that I thought we would kind of got away from it. It seems that we're going headlong back into that incredibly tense situation where the stakes are so high because we're saying, if you bomb our ally, we're going to have bombs or missiles flying straight out of the ocean next to your your mainland. Like, Imagine if the Chinese were having these submarines going past sort of the mainland USA or Britain. We wouldn't be too happy about it. And that's essentially what we're planning to do here. A quick point of clarification, because I said something which perhaps Michael then clarified himself. I'm not suggesting that Russia is a threat to the UK, although of course it could be if we have an escalation and there's a nuclear war, which most of the political establishment doesn't seem to care about or think is even possible. But it is important to, I think, separate quote-unquote defensive security concerns in Europe as a member of NATO from spending billions of pounds to have nuclear-powered submarines in the Pacific Ocean, which is in no way, no arguable way helping to defend the UK. I think it's a very important point to make. And clearly, we don't need to double defense spending because of Russia. Clearly. Next story. Smartphones and social media are destroying children's mental health. That's according to John Byrne Murdoch in the Financial Times. He lays out the arguments like this. Something is going very wrong for teenagers. Between 1994 and 2010, the share of British teens who do not consider themselves likable fell slightly from 6% to 4%. Since 2010, it has more than doubled. The share who think of themselves as a failure, who worry a lot, and who are dissatisfied with their lives also kicked up sharply. The same trends are visible across the Atlantic. The number of US high school students who, pay, who say their life rather often feels meaningless has rocketed in the past 12 years. And it's not just the Anglosphere. In France, rates of depression among 15 to 24 year olds have quadrupled in the past decade. Wherever you look, youth mental health is collapsing and the inflection point is ominously consistent. 2010, give or take a year or two, when smartphones went from luxury to ubiquity. Now, this is specifically about teenagers in the United States. And it shows you two distinct bits of information. The first is the percentage of teenagers who tell a survey it does not feel good to be alive. It's quite a sad statement. That's the red line. As you can see, it hovers at around 5% from 1990 to 2010, then starts rising dramatically. It's now over 10%. The other line shows the percentage of teenagers who rarely meet up with 
friends. That's just over 3% in the 1980s, but then increases dramatically from 2010 onwards. It's also now at above 10%. Another chart he shows is specifically about British teenagers. This shows the percentage of teenagers who self-harmed in the past year and the daily amount of time spent on social media. And the results are pretty striking. For girls who spend under two hours on social media, self-harming rates are around 14%. After two hours online, the rates begin to rise, going above 30% for those who spend five hours on their smartphones. For boys, the same pattern is visible, although it's less dramatic. These are pretty extraordinary findings, and I think most people would agree something is going very badly wrong when it comes to mental health. Michael, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really... I mean, I we often do John Byrne Murdoch's um, things on this show because I think he just shows statistics in a very objective way. It's not particularly sort of... He doesn't often seem to be trying to engage in any particular battle. It's just sort of showing this is a trend which is going on. And I think that's quite important here because... It seems pretty clear to me. It seems intuitive and it seems like it's borne out by the evidence that there is a crisis of, of, of when it comes to the mental health of, of, of younger people. And that I think social media is is the key reason, right? I was having this conversation with someone today who said, no, maybe it's climate change. Maybe social media is a cop-out and it's actually that the world is getting worse and they're all just very attuned to this, you know? So it's just completely rational to be depressed because the world is so terrible. Now, I don't really buy that, to be honest. Like, I think for one, if you're seeing this many people um, feeling, you know, incredibly depressed in a way that they weren't a few years ago. That's, there aren't that many kids who are sort of really obsessing about climate change, right? A lot are, but not that many. Also, um, you know, there have always been very difficult things going on in the international sphere. I think it's it's, it, 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 it's implausible to me that this is sort of, un, it's a uniquely difficult situation that everyone's getting depressed. It, it seems to me much more plausible than it is because people have got social... You know, smartphones in their pocket all day long from being very young. And that makes you constantly in a bit of a competitive relationship with your peers. How many likes are they getting? How many likes have you got? Who, how many friends have they got? How many friends have you got? You know what I mean? Sort of like it's it's a very sort of competitive, I mean, you know, you can call it sort of neoliberal sort of like everything is about you and your self-actualization and your your presentation to other people. I think also, you know, from 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 what you saw there, the idea that social media seems to be sort of meaning that people meet up less in real life, that to me also seems like that's, you know, it's not a surprise that that would lead to to a lot more people getting miserable. Now, I think this is really, really worrying. And I suppose I think one of the reasons we don't talk about it that much, I don't just mean on this show, I mean, as a society is because what do you do about it? You know, what's what's the resolution here? I should say actually, that there's two reasons we don't talk about that much as a society. It's one, it doesn't really, there is no culture war here. Obviously, we talk all the time as a society about trans healthcare for, for teenagers, right? Now, there might be some legitimate questions and sort of uncertainties that people have that sort of need to be hashed out, probably within the medical establishment, not on morning television, but there we are. But that seems to be affecting a much smaller number of people than the fact that everyone has a smartphone in their pocket. But there isn't any political faction that particularly benefits from this argument. There isn't an obvious solution. So everyone's just sort of like, oh, yeah, this is a shame. But uh, what can we, what's the argument we can make? What's the solution we can have? Let's just forget about it. Yeah, I mean, speaking personally, I think in a way it's an opportunity because I feel like as a society, we haven't actually had a proper conversation about digital culture, digital technologies from the addictive side of social media to always being on, always being available, dating culture, pornography for young people, what it does to relationships. And 
I feel a big part of the reason why we're not addressing any of this is because we've come out of 30, 40 years of neoliberalism. I'm using the same word as you, Michael, with a different read on this, I think, which is to say the state can't do anything, legislation doesn't do anything, leave things to the market, let private enterprise determine how society should en engage with technological change. I think it's very bad. And I think over the next 10, 20 years, we're going to start looking at lots of these technologies like smoking. I really think that. I think 20, 30 years from now, we'll look at social media and it's used particularly by children. And it'll be like we look at Mad Men in the 1950s. Now everybody was always smoking. I really, really believe that. Again, big topic for another show. Uh, but it's a big challenge and something we can get right and something we can change. And I think where the solutions are a bit more obvious than is often the case when we're discussing stories on the show. So that's something which is a bit more, I don't know, something to be slightly upbeat about, perhaps. Final story. Never once to miss an opportunity, the Tories have turned the BBC's humiliating climb down over Gary Lineker into an assault on the broadcaster's funding. Lucy Powell is Shadow Secretary for Culture, Media and Sport. Today, in the House of Commons, she tabled an urgent question for Culture Minister Julia Lopez. What does she think it looks like to the outside world that a much-loved sports presenter is taken off air for tweeting something the government doesn't like? It sounds more like Putin's Russia to me. Her government has pursued a deliberate strategy of undermining the BBC to keep it over a barrel to get themselves more favourable coverage. It was on full display overnight and I'm sure it will be on full display here today. Threaten the licence fee, cut its funding, undermine its credibility, all in pursuit of keeping their foot on the BBC's throat. So will she today finally call off the dogs behind her and stand up for the BBC's independence from government? Powell is right. Ever since Lineker won his battle with the BBC, Tories have been furiously threatening the licence fee. On BBC Politics Live, this was Tory MP for Ipswich, Tom Hunt. The fact that he showed no contrition at all after that, no reflection, I, I thought was totally wrong. I, I get the point about how he's not a news presenter, but I think he pretty much is the most highly paid BBC employee there is. He's widely perceived as being a BBC employee. Mm. Um, so cl clearly when he, when he makes comments like that, it, it will have an impact on the way many people perceive the BBC. And all right. you, and there's a growing number of people in this country who are questioning the licence fee. And I think this whole sorry episode will only increase the number who are seriously questioning whether the licence fee is fit for purpose and whether it needs to be looked at. Meanwhile, on GB News, Jacob Rees-Mogg had this to say. The issue is about the BBC rather than about Gary Lineker's view. He's entitled to have any view that he wants. That, yeah. um, we are all in favour of freedom of speech and people being allowed to say things that we don't agree with or we may even find offensive. And that's absolutely fine. He can say what he likes. The issue is that the BBC is the state broadcaster and that it's funded by a tax on televisions. If it weren't then we wouldn't need to worry about its impartiality. And actually, if we change the funding mechanism of the BBC, we could have a much freer media, as they do in the United States, where people are allowed to say what they think. And I think that would be much better, rather than this pretense that the BBC is impartial, which it isn't, uh, and then having rows about particular... So you're saying get rid of the licence fee, which we all have to pay if we watch TV, even people over 75 now. I have long thought that the licence fee is a constraint on the BBC, that it stops it earning revenues by subscriptions on the iPlayer uh, or by taking advertising, uh, and it leads to a heavily regulated media based around what the BBC needs 
and what is needed for a state-funded um, channel. And so, yes, I'm saying the license fee has passed its sell-by date. It needs to go. It's worth pointing out that Jacob Rees-Mogg has a show on GB News, a channel that would stand to benefit if the BBC's funding was cut. The right-wing papers have been getting in on the act too. This is the front page of the Daily Express. Has Lineker put a nail in coffin of license fee? And the Telegraph ran with this article. The license fee is now an anachronism. Lineker's victory may prove pyrrhic if it undermines the BBC's funding model. Those attacks on the license fee continued in the House of Commons today. This is Sammy Wilson from the DUP. The only disaster this weekend has been for the BBC in a despicable way in which it handled the Gary Lineker affair and then caved in to this man and his friends um, who rallied around him. Would the minister agree with me that the BBC has shown once again it's impossible because of its, the, the bias inherent within it to be impartial? And it is now time that all the, the BBC is no longer forced to finance, or PB, people are no longer forced to finance the BBC through the licence fee, especially when every week a thousand people are taken to court by the BBC, 70% of them women for refusing to pay this poll tax on propaganda. A poll tax on propaganda. Catchy, but it's kind of nonsensical. Tory MP Scott Benson chimed in with this. The self-inflicted chaos of the last few days and their apparent unwillingness to enforce their own impartiality rules has frankly made a laughing stock of the BBC. It is clear that it is now grossly overpaid sports presenters rather than executives who are truly calling the shots. Many of my constituents have long regarded the BBC licence fee as a regressive, decades-old, out-of-date tax. Isn't it time we had a grown-up conversation about its future? Isn't it time we had a conversation about its future? M Michael, maybe I'm missing something, but we've been having this conversation permanently. And now with the rise of competing channels like GB News and Talk TV, it's becoming even more intense, isn't it? I think you're going to take a step back and state the bleeding obvious, right? Which is, you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, this is the reason we need to get rid of the, the license fee. A bunch of MPs in Parliament saying, this is the reason we need to get rid of the license fee. This was a sports presenter, a sports presenter tweeting an opinion. Right now, I, I personally think the the BBC is is a decent thing. You know, I think Jacob Rees-Mogg saying we want our media to be a bit more like America. I think that's kind of letting the cat out of the bag. I think you know American political media is a bit of a disaster. Right? Um, what? How should the BBC reform? Potentially, it should have a, a longer term funding model. Right? So it's not constantly at the the behest of these sort of threats from government to say we will withdraw your funding. And I think that's one of the reasons it's often. Um, sort of struggles to to be independent. But just the fact that this conversation has been brought on by a sports presenter tweeting a political opinion, I think just could not be more pathetic. It's important to say one of the new variables in all of this, Michael, is, is the arrival and the emergence of GB News and Talk TV. Because of course, we've had anti-BBC sentiment. Look, I'm very critical of the BBC. Anybody who's familiar with my work. I know you've been critical of the BBC before. It's not like Navarra is, you know, full of BBC stands. I think we generally agree with the idea of public service broadcast. But you have clearly had a, a, a pole of attraction in this country, which doesn't believe in it. And it's principally been operating through 
often very popular tabloid newspapers, The Sun, The Mail. But now with GB News, Talk TV, you might even argue with LBC, right? There's a fragmenting of the broadcast media environment in this country. On the one hand, that shows there's alternatives. People actually now get news from other places too. But on the other, those very commercial organizations have a vested interest in the collapse of the BBC. It's easy to point at GB News with Jacob Rees-Mogg, but it's kind of the same for LBC, right? I mean, there'll be top executives there who will be licking their lips at the prospect of, of the BBC no longer having something which is broadly resembling a monopoly on news. Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose what separates LBC and GB News in, in this situation is that I think there's a, there's, there's a clear and obvious, I mean, there might be a more subtle way but by LBC, but there's a clear and obvious political alliance um, well, an alliance between a political interest and a business interest, the business interest of the, the people who own GB News and the political interest of, of sort of the far right of the Conservative Party who think that public service broadcasting doesn't quite give, you know, international capital as much power over our information environment as it would otherwise be able to have. So you've got a right wing media project, uh, a right wing or let's say a sort of a pure business project. And there's an alliance when it comes to right wing media in the say that there isn't when it comes to more pluralistic or, I mean, LBC clearly isn't left-wing media, but it, it has some presenters who, who are very much not um, on a sort of Rupert Murdoch, Jacob Rees-Mogg type project. When is Michael Walker going to be poached by Global? That's my question, which I'll leave my audience with tonight. And how can you stop it happening? Well, I'll tell you how. You need to support us, hit that subscribe button. Thanks, Michael, for joining me this evening. And thanks everyone else for watching this evening's show. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.